Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, this is it. The long-lost burial site of my ancestor, the Reverend Increase Hooker Zachariah Trumbull Putnam Wolf, famous for his sermon, The Faithful Acknowledgement of the Apprehension of God's Mercies Towards Us and the Use of Reproof to Dash the Conceits of Those Who Would Desert the City on the Hill in the Billiard Room with a Candlestick. Everyone knew him as Nancy. His body has been lost for centuries, but this journal describes him as having died clutching a handful of colonial shillings. I guess I'd better start digging. This looks like some kind of body. Let me brush off the dirt on his wallet. This is very tough to read. Nathan Hall? Nathan Hat? Oh, cool, he's got one of those 18th century driver's licenses where they drew the little picture of his face. Mm, This is not the guy I'm looking for. I'll just toss him over here. (laughs) Ah, I got another one. This guy has some kind of scroll tied to him. Here lie the remains of Prester John. That can't be. Prester John was a mythical Christian patriarch believed to rule over a secret nation lost amidst the Muslims and the pagans in the Orient. Wait, you know, I didn't brush all the dirt off. Here lie the remains of Prester John's cousin Marty. That makes much more sense. I'm just going to toss those bones over on top of Norman Harris or whoever that guy was. This is it! I've found the remains of the Reverend Increase Hooker Zachariah Trumbull Putnam Wolf! And the journal was correct. He is clutching three King George shillings, a sixpence, and a Massachusetts Bay Colony subway token. This is exactly what I was looking for. I'm just going to take him over here. This was a lot of work for one Diet Coke, but so worth it. Today on the show, Connecticut Underground History... And now he regrets selling his Connecticut Bigfoot skeleton at a tag sale. Colin McEnroe. That was short-sighted of me, but I still have a Glowacus uh, and a Millenhead. Unfortunately, we don't have time to explain to you what either one of those things is. It's not going to be that. But that's sort of Connecticut cryptozoology, a whole different area. Let me tell you what we're doing today. A lot of this uh, kind of arose, all of it really, arose from the fact that uh, Elizabeth Norman, who's the publisher of Connecticut Explored, a journal of uh, Connecticut history, and I once a month uh, attend uh, a secret dinner in which we uh, drink the blood of people out of skulls and stuff. I can't really talk about it very much. But anyway, we were sitting next to each other at dinner. She started talking about the current issue, uh, which was uh, the theme was underground. And and a lot of it is keyed around uh, Nick Bellantoni, who's been on the show uh, many times before. Uh, He's an associate professor of archaeology at UConn and also also the Connecticut State archaeologist. But Elizabeth was saying that, as usual, they had uh, thought about the term underground as expansively as possible and had all kinds of uh, interesting angles to that notion including some that we just won't have time to explore today. But, for example, a really fascinating uh, story uh, of uh, an Episcopalian uh, clergyman uh, who 
who started kind of a gay ministry uh, back at a time when the whole idea of a mainstream Protestant church having a gay ministry was almost unimaginable. Uh, that happened in Hartford. Uh, things like that. Anyway, we won't have time to go into all those things today, but we decided that we would basically kind of partner up with Connecticut Explored and, and explore some of the things that, that, that are in this issue. So we brought Nick back into the studio. Studio. He's here with us. Also, Jerry Roberts. He's a writer, maritime historian, and museum executive. He's the project direct, director for Battlesite Essex and the author of The British Raid on Essex, The Forgotten Battle of the War of 1812. In a little while, uh, you're also going to meet uh, Jed Benedict, who um, owns a rather unique wine cellar. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, it was never intended to be a wine cellar. It was intended to be something very different during the Cold War. You can probably begin to guess, but you, you might not get it exactly. So anyway, I don't want to spoil that surprise, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll wait just a second. We should say that uh, Nick Bellantoni, although he's going to continue to be very active in all the ways that um, I just described, uh, is going to be retiring after 27 years as the Connecticut State Archaeologist. And he'll also, I'm actually working with him right now on a PBS Archaeology Roadshow where people bring in uh, skeletons they find from their backyards and severed mizzenmasts from ancient schooners and, and say, is this worth anything? And, and Nick says, you know, you really shouldn't have moved that, actually. <laughs> That's what he says to everybody on the show, so it gets a little monotonous. You really should not have disturbed that. You should not have moved that. So, um, Nick Bellantoni, this uh, issue of Connecticut Explored is full of your adventures, but doesn't even can't even really begin to comprehend the number of adventures that you have had, uh, some of which I, uh, I've, uh, I've known about and, and talked to you about over the years. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe the best way in here, uh, uh, before we bring Jerry in and, and talk about this remarkable story, in Essex, but you know, maybe just tell us uh, a little bit uh, of one of your stories because I'm not, not sure everybody understands what a state archaeologist does. The one the, it's, it warrants a whole separate article in Connecticut Explorer, but the story of Albert Afraid of Hawk is a, an amazing story. Why don't you just sketch that out for us a little bit? Well, it sure is an amazing story, and it's the story of a young man, actually, Ogala Lakota Sioux, who uh, died here in Connecticut in June of uh, uh, 1900 while performing with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. He um, contracted food poisoning right here in Hartford when the show was here, but would die when the show eventually got to Danbury. He was buried in an unmarked grave, forgotten for 112 years. Then a local historian, Bob Young uh, from Danbury, started to do some research, found the burial location, and um, notified the Afraid of Hawk family that still lives on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, um, they requested the repatriation, and I took on the responsibility of exhuming the remains, conducting uh, uh, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Gary Aronson at Yale, the forensic uh, examination, and returning him back. But the, the story is amazing because his family, his uh, grandfather was a, a slow bull, was a signer of the um, uh, Fort Laramie Treaty in 1868, which established the Great Sioux Reservation. He, um, his father, Emil Afraid of Hawk, fought with, uh, was with Sitting Bull during the Battle of Little Bighorn. And his brother, Richard Afraid of Hawk, uh, was actually a survivor of the Massacre of Wounded Knee. So, you know, that whole Western history is encompassed in this man, this family. And uh, to return him back was uh, extremely, it was emotional and it was... Uh, a telling part of 
history and archaeology. You know, I want to go into the details of this a little bit because it's a pretty good example, a pretty good case study of the kinds of things that you do. I should say that I first met Mick, Nick in 1994. I was actually working on a serialized historical novel, and I wanted to know what would happen if they found what amounted to the grave of Nathan Hill. Nathan Hill's never been found. His body's never been found. We think it's somewhere in, uh, under New York City. Uh, what if they found something that old? So I needed to know what an archaeologist does to secure a site and then begin probing to see if anything's there. So I went out and met Nick and wound up basing uh, an, uh, a character in the novel uh, on Nick uh, because he's so colorful, as you can already tell. But, you know, one of the things I learned from you that day, and it really goes to this um, Albert Afraid of Hawk story, is the job that you have to do, it, it really, there's something paradoxical about it. You have to dig down at the same time, being incredibly conscious of anything you might hit or disturb. In other words, finding something is is is, is a fraught uh, undertaking because finding something means coming into contact with an incredibly fragile piece of bone or something else, right? Oh, that's exactly right. And, you know, you work uh, kind of painstakingly. You, you work slow. But, you, you know, with, with the experience of knowing how to excavate and knowing what you're about to, you know, uh, get, you, you know, we knew he was put in a wooden coffin. So the degree of decomposition. We also knew the soils were very acidic in Albert's grave. That means organic remains would not survive very well. And so I wasn't even sure we were going to get any bone um, and so you, you handle it, you know, carefully uh, w- with the knowledge of how to do it, but, but uh, documenting everything you're doing because it's the context that really helps us interpret. But it really gives us insights. It also becomes very personal because, you, you know, when you do the forensic work, you get to know about these people. You know, you, you learn about, you know, their, their life stress pathologies, their health, their, uh, you know, the traumas, uh, diseases, different things that they've gone through, their nutrition through life. And it's 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 becomes very personal. You get to know them, and uh, you understanding you're a human dealing with the remains of another human being. So you handle them hopefully respectfully and professionally. Well, you know, and this this was I mean that that can have a whole bu- a bunch of different manifestations, and sometimes it's sort of just between you and the remains. But this was a little bit more complicated than that because the family came out right. um, for the excavation, so they're up on the lip of this, as I understand it, and they're actually doing some Native American ceremonies and they're burning sage and they're doing stuff like that. You're down there, and I, I, according to this account that I read, at one point you began kind of silently talking to Albert, saying, please be here, right? The family was so amazing. Uh, they they came. They were a part of it. Um, they purified the area. They, they they made sure that all everything we did was in accordance with Lakota tradition and, uh, and spiritual beliefs. It, it was very powerful. And, yeah, uh, the fact that I knew the soils were acidic, that he— there might not be anything. I, I felt bad that they had come all the way from South Dakota for this project. And the fact is that I may not have anything but soil to give them back to return to their reservation with. Um, and so at, at, at one point when I'm getting deeper into the burial unit and I'm realizing I'm not finding anything, I, I was actually talking to him. I was saying, Albert, please be here. You f- be here for your family. Just give me one piece of bone. And uh, it was shortly thereafter that uh, I discovered a part of what would be the, the, the frontal or the forehead, and I realized we had him, and I was very grateful. But I was actually, uh, I was actually talking to the guy. But even then, and I want to just linger <laughs> over this for a second, finding that piece of skull, you've got roots uh, growing through the skull, and what you've got is a great discovery that's unbelievably fragile, right? Absolutely. You nudge it the wrong way, you jostle it the wrong way, it, it might burst or shatter or something like that. Uh, no, uh, that was my biggest fear because uh, the inside of the cranial vault gets full with, with soil, and it's, it's heavy, and the outer layer, if you will, now, which is the, the, the cranial vault itself, is very fragile. 
uh, the cranial facial was completely gone. Those fragile bones were, were completely disintegrated. So I was very fearful that uh, the thing would uh, explode in my hand or explode in the ground. And uh, we were very, very fortunate. Uh, my heart was in my throat for a while, but uh, um, it worked out ex- well. And uh, the family was very pleased, and uh, it was an honor to serve them. One of the things I've learned from talking to you over the years, too, is it really is the luck of the draw and sort of odd things that you wouldn't necessarily think would affect something like this. So in this case, one of the you also found in there, I think, three copper beads and, and some other metal thing, which you think may have actually nullified the acidity of the soil, thus making this thing still exist. That's right. When I was uh, you know, excavating on the left side of the cranium about where the auditory canal is, um, I started hitting hair fibers. And I'm saying to myself, Hair. I mean, how could I get hair? I'm lucky if I'm even going to get bone here. And um, but what happened was Albert was wearing an earring, a copper earring with three beads and a plate. And what that the copper salts when they, they kind of break apart, they neutralize the soil acidity around it. So we actually got the preservation of his hair, and uh, we were able to send that back with the repatriation. It's a great story. People should uh, read the rest of it in, in yeah, Connecticut it Explored. By the way, as we go along here, if you do have questions or uh, I don't know, maybe you do think you have something in your backyard. 860-275-7266. Don't dig it up and then call and describe it to Nick. We don't want you to do that. Don't move it. 860-275-7266. I hope that story we just told illustrates to you how delicate these things are. Um, so, um, and you know, here we're going to maybe tie Jerry into this a little bit, uh, but Nick, as we set that up, I think a lot of people think of Connecticut as a very settled place, alright? It's, you know, it's been around a long time. It's, uh, you know, it's full of bedroom communities and cities and and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's not some vast, unoccupied uh, desert or bad land. How can there possibly be archaeological finds here? But the reality is what's underneath is, I mean, they're just all kinds of untold stories and undocumented stuff. Oh, that's exactly right. You know, that's why I titled the article uh, right down the street and right beneath your feet. The fact is that um, even with all the development that's gone on in the state of Connecticut and uh, everything here, you, you think that it's, as a result, anything underground has already been dug up or destroyed. And then every year, archaeologists working in this state find some of the most amazing sites, uh, uh, just like Jerry's and, uh, and others. That uh, It's still there. That history is still there. It's invisible. You can't see it until it uh, uh, comes out of the ground. But um, it's significant and important, and um, you know, most of my work through the years has been to preserve and educate on that history. So, Jerry, let's let's uh, bring you into this. So, I mean, once again, to that point, I think a lot of people, myself included, would think, "Wow, the War of eighteen twelve. Well, it's a pretty well documented war. It's not ancient history. It's not, you know, one of Hadrian's campaigns uh, for the Roman Empire. And, you know, it, it certainly wouldn't be the case that there would be entire military encounters that." were all but lost to history. But that really is the case with this battle, uh, this battle in Essex, right? This was something that had essentially been forgotten from this war. That's correct. And and so how how did what changed that? Um, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the scope of the battle in just a right. second. But but what 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 occasioned the the realization that such a battle existed? Well, I came to uh, to Essex eight years ago after thirty years in Manhattan, and and uh, as the director of the Connecticut River Museum, and I'm always looking for the big story. And there was this uh, long-standing tradition for the past fifty years of a parade. Uh, it's called Commemoration Day Parade, but the locals actually call it Losers Day Parade, and it roughly commemorates this British raid on Essex. Uh, where a lot of ships were burned. Uh, rumors were that the town capitulated somehow. But that's all anybody knew. It was all folklore. Mm-hmm. Uh, until 1980, one of the town uh, residents, a guy named Al Dock, who was a retired Navy commander, went to a convention in Halifax, Nova Scotia, 
we met a Canadian retired admiral, and they started talking. And once Al Doc said, uh, you know, I'm from Essex, the Canadian admiral said, you know, I've been doing my genealogy, and my great-great-grandfather visited your town uh, in April 1814 as a British sailor, part of this raid. Mm-hmm. And he actually had been researching in British archives and, and gave Al Doc some, some basic information, which he brought back to Essex. But that sort of got published by the Essex Historical Society, but kind of forgotten. It was a small deal. And then a few years ago, as the U.S. Navy was ramping up to celebrate the bicentennial of the War of 1812, I went to a big convention at Mystic Seaport, uh, eager to hear what the Navy had planned for Connecticut. And the only battle they talked about in Connecticut was Stonington. Now, I had read this, the, the information on our battle. I knew it was the biggest battle in the state during the war, 27 ships burned. And I asked, how come, how come we're not on the battle list? And he said, well, because you're, you're not. Basically, you're off our radar, and, and as far as we're concerned, it didn't happen. So we set out then to track down and prove that this battle took place. And as it turns out, like an onion where you peel the layers back, we found out as, as we learned more, it grew bigger and bigger, hundreds of Americans involved. I mean, in some ways, well, first of all, we should say what happened with this battle, right? The the, the British came up the river right. to Pettipog, which right. is what right. what is Essex now, and and burned a lot of privateer type yep, ships, right. right? Yeah, Essex Essex was always a shipbuilding town called Pettipog at the time, and during the War of eighteen twelve, we were building privateers. We knew we were safe. That we knew the British couldn't come up the river because the Great Saybrook sandbar would prevent any large warships from coming up. But the British rowed up, the 136 uh, Royal Marines and sailors in six heavily armed large rowboats, kind of like the landing craft of the time, and, and invaded the town at 3.30 in the morning. And they burned not only our privateers, they burned every ship in the harbor. Um, and and uh, as you became interested in this, well, I mean, let me go over to Nick for a second here. So once again, I mean, one, one of the things you document in, uh, in your piece in Connecticut Explored uh, is a, a site related to Israel Putnam, one war before this in the American Revolution. Uh, but, you know, you get the French and Indian War, you've got the American Revolution, you've got the War of 1812, in, in not short succession, but in succession. How, how much how often, first of all, I guess it's, it's fair, it would be fair to say, how often does somebody find something from one of those wars still here in Connecticut? Oh, actually, uh, in terms of artifacts, I, I get calls sometimes all the time. We get, uh, I've had uh, recently uh, someone in Danbury along one of the old dirt roads found actually uh, part of a bayonet mm-hmm. that was eroding out of the, the bank. And that was a Revolutionary War era. And we associate with possibly um, um, even Rochambeau's, the French armies coming through that area. So, um, yeah, people will, will find artifacts and hopefully we could identify and then understand the historic context in which they come into. But um, those sites are out there, the campsites, the, the battle sites, uh, you know, uh, Fort Griswold at Groton. What an amazing uh, site that is. And, of course, it's an archaeological, uh, very important archaeological site. So um, in terms of Essex, um, how involved did you get in sort of trying to figure out archaeologically what was there? Well, basically, we, we assisted, uh, Jerry, we did uh, with our friends at the Natural Resources Conservation Service, went out and did some ground penetrating radar to try to redo the bank uh, area um, back in um, uh, was it the 80s uh, that uh, Don Melcarney, the former uh, uh, town historian and, and an archaeologist by the name of John Pfeiffer found the the old uh, wharfs uh, to the waterfront. And recently, uh, Dr. Kevin McBride and uh, his students uh, have been working with Jerry in finding the the remnants of the actual ships uh, themselves in in the harbor. So, uh, a lot of archaeological attention has gone into it. Little bits and pieces now coming together with this major project. 
And, and so, Jerry, you became an archaeologist, effectively, on this project, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm an historian, and, and historians are interested in the story, and archaeologists are inter- interested in the stuff, and it takes both. It takes the story and the stuff to, 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 to make it come to life. And, and, you know, it's interesting. Besides the things that you purposely go out and dig up and find with archaeology and metal detection and ground-penetrating radar, uh, and we did discover a new shipwreck in this project you also – things come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. When you put the word out there, somebody brings you a sword. Somebody brings you a cannonball that's been a doorstop in their house for the last 100 years. And, and, and so it, it doesn't all get dug out of the ground. Some of it just gets found by people in their attics and then and hopefully brought to you. I mean those two things literally happen, right? You get a cutlass yeah. that, that somebody thought – I think they thought it was a Revolutionary War right. artifact, yeah. right? Yeah, a local antique shop was selling a, a, a sword. They didn't know what it was. Somebody you know raked it out of the harbor, what, probably mucking for clams or something, and they labeled it an American sword from the revolution. A local uh, member of the museum bought it, brought it in to present it to us, and I fortunately recognized it wasn't a sword from the revolution. It was a British sword from 1804, and the only way that could have gotten in Essex Harbor is during this raid. So this is a needle in a haystack that turns mm-hmm. up 200 years later. And you did find uh, a cannonball being used as a doorstop. I was at dinner at the Dauntless Club, which is right on the waterfront in Essex, and I always ask people, believe it or not, whenever I have dinner at their house, do you have any cannonballs? <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes people do. And, and sure enough, they had a cannonball that was being used as a doorstop, and we were able to use this cannonball to confirm you know, rumors or reports that a British uh, cannonball had hit the town uh, a mile, a half a mile inland, a uh, 24-pound ball, which was extraordinarily large to be fired from rowboats. But sure enough, now we had the cannonball. So that was, uh, again, just something we didn't expect. Um, let's do one more of those. You actually had a guy come up to you at a, after yeah, a lecture yeah. you gave, right? Right. I do lectures all the time in support of my book and support of the project, uh, you know, Battleside Essex. And uh, a gentleman called me and said, hey, I think I know where one of those privateers that the British burned is. And I'm kind of like, yeah, right, I'm sure you do. And he said, uh, yeah, I, I, it's under my dock. <laughs> and so I called, I called Kevin McBride to come by, and together we looked. And sure enough, under his dock in the Connecticut River is a pile of ballast stone, which is what gets left after a ship is burned. And, and with a lot of investigation, we, 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 we matched that to the historic records. And then based on that, Kevin deployed his team on the riverbank. And they found about 40 musket balls, some American, some British, which shows a shootout between this burning wreck and the American militia on shore. So a whole new piece of this battle was uncovered. You know, um, I want to go back to Nick for a second about the ground penetrating radar. But before I do that, I mean, maybe we haven't haven't really sort of said enough about the battle, too. I mean, the battle, it, it sort of has been understood, basically, to the extent that it's ever been understood as, just like, well, it, it, undeniably, it was a pretty big setback. Right. British came up, they burned all these yeah. ships. That's not good. Right. Um, did you learn more about the battle, uh, something that, that cast it in a, a slightly different yes. light? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of rumor was that the British came up, the Americans uh, capitulated, the British burned the ships and left, and that was a you know shame on Essex kind of thing. But what we found out is, first of all, the British you know came up you know, with highly, highly armed forces, uh, you know, the equivalent of our Navy SEALs, if you will, hit the town at 3.30 in the morning. We had perhaps a dozen local militia on the beach with a half an hour's notice, a four-pound cannon against the British 12-pound cannons. And, and our guys in the shootout, they lost and they, they, they had to withdraw. The British burned the ships. But the next day, as the British were heading down with two big captured privateers, they went aground in the river. And that gave us a bit of time to mobilize troops from Killingworth, New London, Lyme, Saybrook. Over 500 Americans, including U.S. Navy, uh, Marines, uh, uh, soldiers, militia. And it, it was a big battle in the end. And, and dozens of cannons were fired as the British tried to make their way out the, the following night. 
Uh, the British lost a couple of men. Uh, so it wasn't some little squirmish pushover. It was really a battle. And the, and the National Park Service immediately uh, recognized that I went to Washington to the American Battlefield Protection Program, and they said, no, this isn't a skirmish. This is a battle. It meets all the criteria of a battle. And so that was they gave us the funding to uh, to go find the battle. I, I think um, I wonder also how it sort of shaped Connecticut attitudes because, uh, as we know, a big portion of Connecticut didn't want anything to do with the War of 1812. They were ticked off <laughs> that we would be even in such a thing. Although I would imagine attitudes along the coast uh, where there's a lot of shipping and a lot of privateers might be different from attitudes up in Hartford where they were having the convention and, and, and bitching about this. Um, did it sort of radicalize uh, Connecticut or at least get Connecticut a little bit more into defense prep? Well, I can tell you two things. One, one immediately after the battle, there was 90 newspaper articles written across the nation, some of them condemning you know, Connecticut for not defending itself better, others condemning the federal government for not supporting Connecticut that was building ships for the war. Uh, so that re- really affected things. And then also, you know, even now, there's sort of this feeling that, oh, yeah, Essex, that's, that's the loser's day. Uh, but, but I think now people are beginning to understand this was a, a major conflict. The people did the best they could under the circumstances, uh, and, and it's great to recognize that now. All right. And even if it's Loser's Day, it is one of the cutest, nicest Loser's Days <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. You couldn't go to a more beautiful place for Loser's Day. And, and anyway, it's not. Um, just before we take a break, Nick, I just want to come back because you, both you and Jerry have made reference to ground-penetrating radar. And once again, when we think about what archaeologists do, we think of you guys with little trowels and little picks and little, you know, and, and all those hand tools. And obviously, they're still part of it. Um, but ground-penetrating radar, boy, that sounds like kind of a leg up on some of these questions. Oh, no, absolutely. I- you know, archaeologists, I like to say, will steal anything to help us look, know what's in the ground before we dig. And using geophysical techniques like ground-penetrating radar, electromagnetic imaging, there's this new uh, satellite remote sensing uh, now called LIDAR that is allowing us to strip the forest away and actually find stone walls and stone mounds from old colonial uh, 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 farms and so forth. The technology is extraordinary. In fact, I, I tell the technicians at the Natural Resources Conservation Service when they work with them, you guys are going to put me out of business because you, you're going to just run radar over and know everything that's underground. But um, it's, it still takes an archaeologist to excavate to actually um, you know, ground-proof what we're actually finding uh, with the radar images. But um, these kind of technologies are just spurting the science of archaeology. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this technology could keep archaeologists a lot busier because right. you know what you're looking for uh, or you know there might be something there, something worth digging for. Okay, we got to take a break. In our final segment, we're going to come back to some of these topics, talk a little bit more uh, about about archaeology uh, here in Connecticut. And I want there's some more stories to tell about technology that are pretty interesting. But we'll take a break from that. In the next segment, we are going to talk about uh, a different kind of underground, an underground that dates back to the Cold War in Connecticut. All right, we're back with our story about our show about underground Connecticut and the stories associated with underground Connecticut. Uh, Nick Bellantoni is here with us. He's the Connecticut State archaeologist. Uh, Jerry Roberts is here. His uh, book is The British Raid on Essex, The Forgotten Battle of the War of 1812. And in just a second, we're gonna, you're going to meet Jed, Be- Jed Benedict, who has another underground story to tell. But before we do that, and so that I don't forget to mention these two things, first of all, Jerry, um, one thing I'm not sure we even made clear is you're the project director for Battlesite Essex. I mean, the result of all this 
this archaeology is the recreation uh, of this battle site. And you've got a website people can visit to learn more about this? Sure, battlesiteessex.org. And we've created uh, driving maps, walking maps that people can download and, and, and find everywhere and, and come and visit the battle sites. We've put up historic markers. That's battlesiteessex.org. And then this, uh, this coming Sunday, I'm actually doing um, a book signing at the Griswold Inn in Essex, which was actually occupied by the British officers during the raid. Um, we should, and Nick, also, uh, for people who've been listening to you talk and thinking, well, I'd like to do that. I want to go find Nathan Hale or something. Uh, you've actually got a field school coming up in August that the public can, can join you in? That's exactly right. Uh, through the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History and Archaeology Center at UConn, we're going to be doing an adult field school from uh, August 4th to the 8th. And any of the public that would like to come out, get their fingernails dirty and join us in the ground, we'd love to have them. So just contact the Museum of Natural History at UConn. Also, my friends group, the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology, will be assisting on that. And people can also participate through that organization, too. All right. So um, lots of opportunities for people to participate in the kind of history and archaeology that we're talking about here today. Let's uh, have a conversation with Jed Benedict. I have to say, I have to... Uh, preface this by saying that I was a reporter uh, at the Hartford Current from or, and a columnist there for, for like 20 years, starting around 1976. And sometime, I think in the late 1970s, I always had this list of crazy stories that people had told me that I was trying to confirm. And I think it was in the late 1970s. It might have been at some other time. Somebody told me that there was some place in Connecticut where, in fact, banks and insurance companies and other financial institutions were storing their records in this super secure vault uh, that could withstand almost anything except a direct hit uh, from a nuclear warhead uh, and, and, and blah, 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 blah. And I ran around trying to confirm this and asking people about it. And most people basically lied to me and said that it didn't exist. Uh, and a few people told me that it did exist, but they wouldn't tell me where. I had the town wrong, whoever told me that. And it just it was a wild goose chase. And at a certain point, I concluded that the whole thing was not true. Um, well, guess what? <laughs> there was something called the Underground Record Protection, Co- Protection Cooperative Trust. And here, uh, Jed can uh, enter our story. Jed Benedict, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, so you wound up uh, buying this property where this exists. It's in Stafford. Tell us more about it. Well, the, the, you, you hit the nail on the head a little bit with the Cold War relic uh, piece. Uh, the insurance companies in Hartford built, bought this property in Stafford back in the early 60s. And they, <clears throat> it's on the top of a hill, and they shaved the top of the hill off, and they built this underground bomb shelter um, to store their documents, was supposedly to store their documents. And, they, and then, in fact, they did store documents here. But the way they built it and how secure it was and how secret it was, it seemed a little, it was a little bit beyond the need for just paper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, the way they designed it with having food rations in here and decontamination showers and, it's, and everything, it seems like they fully intended on having people stay here, too. Yeah, I told Betsy, our, our producer, that I, I'd heard about the decam- decontamination shower. So I'm glad for you to confirm that to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so uh, when you, how did you come into possession of this? I mean, how did it go from being this incredibly essential thing, where uh, possibly, well, all of our financial records plus uh, the next Adam and Eve or whoever they thought was going to be in there, uh, awaiting the end of the fallout to go back and restart the human race? Um, how did you come into possession of it? Well, they, they ran that business up until uh, 1993, and they sold it to a local developer who, it's a 250-acre piece, so they sold it to a developer who subdivided a portion of it, but kept the, I call the vault, intact with a bunch of land around it. And uh, he sat on it for seven years, not knowing what to do with it, and it just sat dormant. And um, 
I was working down in New York City for a bank, and I joked with a guy at a bar about this cool underground bunker, and he said that's a great place for a wine storage facility. And I said, you know, well, they had that light bulb moment that we've all had, mm-hmm. and um, I started researching it, and I left New York, came up here, and with an empty vault full of old documents, I uh, turned it into a um, pretty successful wine storage business. And so um, I just want to go back to, 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 to the they in your story. The sure. they was this trust, right, a cooperative trust that had somehow or other formed of all these financial institutions? Correct. And back in that day, um, I don't think Iron Mountain and, and those document archive places were as prevalent. And I thought they, they probably thought that it was more cost-effective just to own it themselves. And if they couldn't, they, the insurance companies, the group, couldn't fill it, they also rented space out to smaller Banks that you would, you know, wouldn't really have the the money to afford to send something off to a, a, you know, an Iron Mountain or something like that. So when you took when you took over and went in there, first of all, I have to ask: Did you find a passbook from Society for Savings with my name on it? I have the account <laughs> number here. It's zero one seven. No, go ahead. <laughs> I had when when I took over the the property, um, a lot of the SNLs that had gone out of business simply just left their documents here. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm talking about two or three 30-yard dumpsters full of documents mm-hmm. that I actually culled through all of them, yeah. with, with looking for that moment where maybe they left some bearer bonds or something back. And I did open a box up that had bonds in it, mm-hmm. but they had been canceled. So I, I had that moment of, oh, my gosh, this is my life right here. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, your life on the Cayman Islands. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. just even you mentioning documents and dumpsters, Jerry and Nick are both weeping in here. I mean, historians <laughs> and archaeologists, they don't like the idea of things you find going in dumpsters. Um, so, I mean, so did a lot of that stuff just kind of disappear? It just, it's, it's gone now? Well, I did. I, I mean, I, I actually, I'm a historian buff, a military history buff, actually, and uh, I kept, I, I went through all the documents myself. And anything that was just a simple you know, insignificant historical piece just about, like, you know, keeping track of bank financials. That's the stuff that got pitched. But they had ledger books, the old-school ledger books, like the accountants used to use, where people were deeming war bonds from, like, uh, World War II. I kept all those ledger books. They had, they had ledger books of people signing things in. They had minutes from meetings that they were discussing a potential nuclear war, what, what would happen. Um, that's why I alluded to the fact in the earlier about they in these in these books I found these senior executives actually discussed openly that oh if there's a war is intimate, um, we're going to get the senior executive up there the the board of directors will all go up there so I kept all those documents because I thought they were pretty significant. Yeah, my understanding was that uh, the plan was for Oz Griebel and his wife to restart the human race, and, and everybody would be banking executives. The entire human race would be, uh, we would all be banking executives. Uh, well, that's why I, I, I chuckled when you mentioned Adam and Eve, because it would just be all executives coming up here. Right. I, I think our finances as a human race would be much better managed, at least under those circumstances. We might not be as much fun, but... Uh, all right, so um, so the, you know, the punchline to the story you've kind of already given away, but it turns out that the exact perfect conditions for the survival of the human race and banking documents are also very friendly to the storage of wine, correct? This is correct, yeah. The, the, storage, the original storage facility, and we actually built an identical underground one this past year. Uh, they're eight feet underground, so it's almost a natural ambient temperature without having to run any of the equipment uh, is around 55 degrees, which is perfect for wine. So that's what you're doing now, right? It's a wine storage facility. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we have... Uh, we have about 37,000 cases of wine in storage right now. And do you store these for stores, for private? I mean, who, whose wine is this? 
the the crazy thing is predominantly um, it's all private collectors. Yeah. So so somebody calls you up and says, "I need the you know." Chateau de Neuf de Pop, something, something, and, and they, they come and they pick it up from you? or they, they, they have that option, but most often we have a delivery service where we're bringing the wine to them. Um, most of our clients are kind of the lower Fairfield, lower Connecticut area, New York City, Westchester County. Mm. And, so, and as you walk in there to, to pick up somebody's uh, a case of somebody's wine, are there still a few reminders left uh, of the Cold War and, and the perilousness of our, our existences? Oh, yeah. One of the things I, I, I wanted to do is I kept all the original signage, mm-hmm. um, which just kind of brings you back to that time period. And also, the front door to get into the actual storage facility is a 12-ton bank vault door, the kind you see like if you're going into an old safe deposit box with the big tumblers. So that, obviously, we kept. And we, we shut and locked that. That's part of the security of the place, too. We shut and lock it at night. So right. I tried to preserve some of that, uh, that um, original feel. All right. Well, Jed Benedict, it's so great to talk to you. Jed Benedict is the owner and founder of Horse Ridge Cellars, the exact enterprise that we are discussing right now. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of Jerry Roberts, more of Nick Bellantoni after this. There's no time to go into it now, but other archaeological digs have turned up James Vanderbeek, Carrot Top, and the original members of Yes. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Katie Pikus. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by King Cut. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff digging up the lost cookbooks of Dolly Madison, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, actors Jerry Adler and Richard Klein visit our studios. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, Jerry Adler and, uh, and Richard Klein are both um, longtime actors uh, and directors who have worked in stage, television, and movies. You may remember Jerry Adler as Hesh on The Sopranos. Uh, what a great role. Uh, and you may remember Richard Klein as Larry Dallas uh, on Three's Company. But they have lots of other stories to tell. and we'll, uh, they're, uh, they're out in eastern Connecticut right now doing The Sunshine Boys. So they'll be in studio tomorrow to, uh, to tell some stories. Uh, and I'll be talking about my minor role on I'm Dickens, He's Fenster. Um, all right. So if you have questions now about archaeology in the state of Connecticut, now's a good time to call in 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Let's just show how felicitous such a call can be. Here's John in Manchester. Hi, John. Hey, how are you doing, Colin? Just fine. Uh, I have a comment. I, I, I don't even know how, how I started looking, into, looking for this, but I found online that there was a soapstone quarry, uh, ancient uh, American Indian soapstone quarry in Bristol, Connecticut, that was discovered by a farmer in the 1890s. And, and uh, the quarry actually had soapstone bowls carved into the face of the soapstone cliff when he was excavating for a barn. He found it. He contacted archaeologists in Connecticut. Uh, someone from uh, Massachusetts came down and actually contracted for him to carve out a section of the cliff and send it to the uh, Chicago World's Fair. And um, I, I, I think it got filled in and covered up, and it's never been uh, something that people can actually see anymore. 
but there's a whole soapstone ridge that runs from Bristol up to People's Forest, and I think there's a evidence of a soapstone quarry in, in People's Forest as well. I don't like that uh, Chicago World's Fair story. That sounds like not a good uh, handling of the site. Nick, is this something you know about? Absolutely. Uh, the soapstone quarries were utilized by Native Americans uh, four to 5,000 years ago. Uh, they were carved out of the, of the, the the rock face walls, and those well, you can still see those today at certain spots. So we don't advertise the location of them because of a fear of vandalism. But there are some that are still intact. The one in Bristol was long gone uh, and kind of blown away um, during the late 19th and early 20th century. But uh, it's a really those are really those quarry sites are really remarkable. As a matter of fact, Ken Fader from Central Connecticut State University and his students are working on one uh, right now um, along the Farmington River. So uh, they're very important parts of Native American uh, technology and, and culture, That uh, very, very important sites. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I want to talk a little bit more about the, the technology uh, here. And, and, I mean, Nick, uh, you've got some amazing stories. Jerry, you know, one thing that we maybe haven't stressed enough here is uh, in creating the so-called Battle Site Essex. I mean, this is, it's about a seven-mile stretch, right, al- along the river. So did you have to painstakingly go over those seven miles with... Uh, with ground-piercing radar and metal detectors and stuff like that? And, I mean, who pays for all that? That sounds kind of expensive. <laughs> well, you need three things. You need, first of all, you need a documented history. Mm-hmm. And we got a great grant from the Connecticut uh, Humanities Council to do that, to document the history. We hired a researcher in England. Uh, we bulked up our team here. Uh, so you prove the battle happened on paper with documents. Then you need to uh, – there's a system called COCA. It's basically matching the modern landscape to the original landscape, what, what, what buildings are still there, what colonial roads. In, in our case, the river is still there, the Connecticut River is there. Twenty-four houses in Essex uh, are still standing now that were here when the British marched up Main Street. So, and, and all the colonial roads are intact. So, so, so you do that. Then the last thing you do, of course, is you take that, the landscape and the informed narrative and you choose selective places to dig. Obviously, we can't afford to dig everywhere. Mm-hmm. But we did get a great grant from the American Battlefield Protection Program which was developed by the National Park Service to, to do exactly this sort of thing, to identify and preserve battle sites. And, and that's where we were able to uh, bring in Kevin McBride's team um, and, uh, and look for stuff. And, and the other thing is, I mean, there must be stuff in the river as well. I mean, well, there's all kinds of things in the Connecticut River, right. all kinds of things underwater, right? right? Sure. I mean, besides that sword that was found, which is amazing to me, and, and this recent shipwreck that we found, I mean, as recently as last October, we found the new shipwreck in the Connecticut River associated with the battle. Now, the other thing is people think there must be 27 ships out there uh, in the harbor and there must be cannons on them and so forth. Well, first of all, the ships, most of them weren't armed. Uh, the ones that would be armed would be armed later in New London where the armories were or New York. Uh, and also because Essex has been a harbor for a couple hundred years or more, they would have dredged it several times. They would have removed shipwrecks that were in the way of the steamboats that came in a few years later. So – but there – but trust me, there there is stuff. Just two years ago, the the um, the DEP was was dragging nets for for sturgeon research, and they dug up an old ship's knee. And I called Nick, and he came and took a look. And sure enough, it's a ship's knee that probably is associated with this raid. 
Um, there's all kinds of stuff. By the way, look at Connecticut Explored, this issue that we're talking about, because it's got all kinds of, I mean, William Gillette's houseboat is sitting down there in the bottom of some river. Um, Nick, I want to talk, with the time we have left, uh, say a little bit more about uh, technology, because over the course of 27 years as state archaeologist, you've seen the game change. And, and just also to give people a sense of what a dashing figure of international intrigue you are, um, <laughs> it, it's, this is, most of your adventures do happen in Connecticut, but not all of them. You, you got uh, brought over to Moscow, right, to, to, to to look at, at a discovery that seemed to have something to do with the death of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, we were we were involved in a research and production project with the History Channel to go over and do some uh, test excavations in Germany where um, the Russians had buried Hitler and Eva Braun and um, uh, the Goebbels family uh, in a number of places. And then uh, um, the Soviets had brought back a cranial vault fragment uh, that they had found in the Reich Chancellery Garden actually in 1946, a year after the original bodies were found, and brought that back to um, to Moscow at the offices of the Confederation, the Federation Archives. And anyhow, we um, through that project we had access, and we were able to do some um, forensic study of it, and also some DNA at the University of Connecticut. And turns out it wasn't Adolf at all; it was in fact a woman. Uh, but um, um, it was a fascinating project to be involved with. It still gets um, it's got a long shelf life. Well, you know, and just to sort of get a little bit more specific about that, so you've got about an hour to work with these samples to yeah. uh, take you know, to take samples of samples, basically, and you, um, bring them back to the University Center for the for Applied Genetics. Um, and and you know, at that point, it seems to me something kicks in that's considerably more high tech than probably what was available when you first became state archaeologist. I mean, can, obviously, DNA wasn't a new idea then e- either. But in terms of um, forensic analysis of, of DNA, how much has the game changed? Oh gosh, uh, just uh, enormously. Uh, there was no DNA or efficiently when when I started and. Uh, not only does, does that uh, help, but, you know, uh, things like stable carbon isotope analysis to get from the bones, the diets of people from the first 20 years of their life during growth and development. I mean, the, 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 the laboratory processes now, you know, in the old days, we, it was gross morphology. You looked at the bones and, you, you know, you, you measured them and you, you, you got what you could. But now, uh, and at best, maybe x-ray, but now... We learned so much, uh, and the technology just keeps improving. When we started, uh, you know, radiocarbon dating was kind of a, a great thing. And, but you needed a sample of, say, charcoal the size of your fist. Today, you know, with accelerator dating, you know, you don't even need anything the size of your pinky uh, uh, fingernail. It's just an incredible advances that have allowed us to do. It, it doesn't displace the old methods, you know, the gross morphology and the, uh, the examination of the, of the, of the bones. But uh, it adds another dimension that was never there before. Uh, maybe in the time that we have left, too, you could just say uh, a little bit as if you get ready to retire as state archaeologist, although you'll continue to teach and do all this other stuff. Uh, any cold cases? I mean, I think you and I are not going to find Nathan Hale. First of all, <laughs> the people on the Upper East Side in the 60s or wherever, they're just not going to let us uh, dig around under their apartments or something like that. But there, are there cold cases for you? Is there one in particular that stands out? Oh, there's there's a few of them, actually, not only uh, in terms of historic cases, but, um, you know, our work uh, with the medical examiner's office and the state police, uh, we are actually uh, working on actual cold cases to assist them when human skeletal remains are uncovered or buried murder victims are, you know, murder victims are buried uh, to hide the bodies. So um, there are a number of those cases that are still uh, applicable and uh, active uh, on the books. But, um, yeah, you know, um, 
every time the, the phone rings or there's a new email, it sets you off on a new adventure and different things to do. So hopefully that will never stop because uh, um, it's been a great pleasure through, through the last 30 years. You know, I just uh, I, I, this came up the other day. I can't remember what else we were talking about, but but your name came up in this connection. And it makes me wonder, you know, to the to that whole point of police cold cases. Um, how do they know when to call you? In other words, uh, the, I mean, there are some cases where you call the medical examiner and the crime lab. Um, how how old does something have to be before the state archaeologist gets brought in? Well, by state statutes, I get involved with the medical examiner's office when remains are uncovered, either accidentally or through um, any kind of process, that are 50 years old or more in part of a historic grave. However, because of my involvement in those kind of historic projects, uh, unmarked burials and such, um, I may get called in by the, the, the medical examiner's office or, in fact, uh, state police to assist because they found skeletal remains in the woods um, or they suspect there might be a buried murder victim in a certain area and to help us help them, assist them in getting the remains out in a way that's going to allow for uh, uh, evidences that they could use in a court of law. Um, so uh, technically, I have no uh, statutory responsibility for modern criminal investigations, but because of our work and experience in Connecticut, we may get called in on occasion. All right. You know, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, I want to remind you once again, uh, Nick Balantoni, who's been with us, uh, is a professor of archaeology uh, at the Conne- University of Connecticut. UConn is, is what it's called now. Connecticut State Archaeologist as well. Uh, and um, Jerry Roberts. And we should quickly say, just remind people again about Battlesite Essex. So people can go to battlesiteessex.org and they can sort of see what this seven mile stretch is and, and, and then walk it or... or so they can download maps. They can take their own battle tours. They can find out about programs that we're doing. They can order the book through the site. They can do all kinds of things. We're even doing river tours where people can go by boat and visit the battle sites. So you can go out there and you can figure out how you would have beaten the British, Mr. Big Shot. Uh, but meanwhile, Jerry has done a, a great job to redeem. I mean, I don't really feel like Essex has been under this whole cloud of shame that anybody else has been particularly aware of. But... Uh, but I guess there were what, there were people who were trash talking Essex about this. Huh? Absolutely, and it still happens sometimes. I feel like we did our best. You know, we were outmatched. All right. So uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, and uh, coming up tomorrow, as I said, we've got uh, Mr. Klein and Mr. Adler coming in for some interesting reminiscence. I'm going to ask Jerry Adler. I don't know if I dare ask him about this. He was supposed to direct the Broadway musical version of The Little Prince by Sonic Zipere, and I believe it closed after no performances, despite having kind of an interesting cast and an interesting story. Um, sometimes with time, people are willing to talk about their great disasters. I'm hoping he will. We'll have the news uh, coming up on Friday. We're set, setting that up right now. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf for getting it all together. I'm Kyle Wolf. <laughs> Betsy Kaplan's eyeglasses. No, Betsy. I just saw her last night. She was fine, and now she's gone. Thanks. I've been looking everywhere for those. Betsy! You're welcome.